Well, and all presidents, uh, you know, feel the sting of criticism from the press. LBJ said that if he swam in the Potomac, the press would say that it was only because he couldn't walk on water. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports media. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. And together, we're professional media historians guiding you through our own drafts of history. Transcripts of the show are available at journalism-history.org slash podcast. The contentious relationship between the administration of U.S. President Richard Nixon and journalists is well known. Major episodes such as the publication of the Pentagon Papers and later coverage of the Watergate scandal are touchstones of American journalism. But as Brigham Young University Associate Professor Dr. Dale Cressman explains in an article published in Journalism History, Nixon picked a fight with journalists and specifically television newscasters early in his presidency. Unleashing allies like Vice President Spiru Agnew on the media, Nixon sought early to pressure journalists to give his administration favorable news coverage or face consequences. As Cressman explains, one result of those efforts was a tangled relationship with the then underdog of TV news, ABC. Dale, welcome to the show. So I, I think the best place for us to start might be for you to lay the groundwork, sort of uh, provide a foundation of where ABC was at this point. Nowadays, we think of ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox today, too. But ABC was a very different network. It, it was in a different position back then. Can you sort of tell us where it was in, in relation to those other networks? Well, it was so weak uh, that people sometimes jokingly refer to it as the almost broadcasting company. <laughs> the fewest it had the fewest affiliates uh, carrying the uh, the the broadcast the newscast and it was in third place it didn't have its own film crews until 1963 it didn't expand to color until uh, uh the other networks didn't expand to 30 minutes until after the, the networks and by the time it converted to color they had a failed merger and they had real money problems. In fact, Av Weston said when he joined ABC, uh, he was shocked to learn that the affiliates uh, committee was actually considering pressuring the network to drop the network newscast in favor of a syndication uh, service. That's that's interesting then, and it's, uh, that it plays such a big role in the story that you have to tell here, right? So maybe explain the connection then between the network and and Nixon and some of these other characters, right? How did how did ABC and Nixon wind up crossing paths? Well, and and of course, they all of the networks uh, did, and lots been lot has been written on the other networks, but we have some weird connections. With ABC, and one of the major ones is James Haggerty, who was Eisenhower's press secretary. Later, went on after uh, Kennedy became president, went on to be president of ABC News. Didn't do terribly well because he was a print guy, and so in 1963 they decided to hire Elmer Lauer, who was an executive at NBC News, and. Um, Haggerty was kicked upstairs to a vice president's connection, but he continues on having 
um, he's almost like playing for the White House instead of ABC. So that's that's one connection. Another connection is ABC is running a very successful television drama series called The FBI, which it is is doing with the cooperation and approval of the FBI. You also have uh, two anchormen that one the White House loves, and that's Howard K. Smith, and the other that, that the White House hates, and that's Frank Reynolds. And at some point, uh, they had to choose between um, uh, uh, Frank Reynolds and uh, Harry Reasoner. We can get to that uh, later. But then the, the last thing was ABC uh, longtime diplomatic correspondent John Scalley goes to work for the Nixon White House. So you have all these, even though there's interplay between the Nixon White House and all the other networks, ABC has just some weird connections, it seemed to me. That's interesting. So, so then let's let's turn and look squarely at, at the Nixon administration, because um, I think it's really important for us to understand I mean, one of the big questions that I've I've long had is why Nixon and Agnew and other people in the administration were so hostile toward the news media. Um, like, having not studied that administration personally myself, I still knew that much about them. So where did that hostility come from? And then how does it manifest in the story that you tell? And that, that way, maybe we can draw ABC and, and Nixon together. Well, and all presidents... You know, feel the sting of criticism from the press. LBJ said that if he swam in the Potomac, the press would say that it was only because he couldn't walk on water. But uh, <laughs> Nixon's hatred came very early on. Uh, he lost the 1960 election, very close election to John F. Kennedy. And then he went and ran for governor in California in 1962 and felt that the press played a part in his loss and afterwards uh, was ill-tempered, giving a press conference, uh, telling the press, look, you've had Dick Nixon to kick around. It's been fun, but this is it. This is my last news conference. Hmm. And uh, ABC, actually, Howard K. Smith and Jim Haggerty uh, do a, a documentary on ABC following the 1962 election Uh, called uh, Richard Nixon's political obituary. So Nixon already just hated the press. And Agnew came to hate the press as well as he ran. um, I mean, at first when he was governor of Maryland, he was kind of a moderate governor, but later uh, became more controversial and combative. But then when he ran as vice president in 1968, he made a number of gaffes on the campaign trail, and the press naturally jumped on those. And so he felt uh, uh, kind of beat up over that. So they they both disliked the press, but I think Nixon had a much longer and more deeply rooted hatred for the press, and combined with his personality – um, uh, the the kind of paranoia that some people have attributed to him, um, he ends up really, really disliking the press before he even starts as president. Okay. So in your paper, uh, we get uh, a few months, I think it was about nine months into the Nixon administration, and things aren't going great. It's not like things are going terribly, but he's facing some serious pressure. And Nixon delivers this 
major speech in his in his political career, right? This, this great silent majority speech, but he doesn't get the reaction that he wanted from certain from certain sectors, right? So uh, tell us a little bit about that speech and the reaction that he received. Well, he gave it in the first place because, as you said, things were not going well. There were lots of negative things uh, in the press, and people, uh, political observers, were saying in Time magazine and Newsweek magazine things that he wasn't up to the job, and and Vietnam was weighing him down, and the moratorium was going on. This is where protesters encourage people to take one day off each month, the fifteenth, and so Pat Buchanan encouraged him to give a speech defending himself and his Vietnam policy. And so he worked very hard writing his own speech. Um, He claims to have come up with this brilliant uh, uh, term, the great silent majority. Um, In fact, Buchanan claims that he coined it during the campaign. And William Sapphire told Tim Naftali that, that it was an old term that meant dead people. (laughs) <laughs> in order to join the silent majority meant you were in the cemetery. Um, so he gives this speech and um, it's a success with the public. But um, the White House had built it up to be such a big speech that uh, it ended up not breaking any news. And so when the commentary came on afterward on the networks in which the anchorman would discuss what the president had said before the next scheduled television program, the commentary was negative. And and they particularly were sensitive toward ABC. One, because they hated Frank Reynolds. They thought Frank Reynolds was very negative toward the campaign when they were running for president. And also because Avril Harriman, who was a negotiator for LBJ uh, uh, for the Vietnam War and was a Democrat, uh, was a guest on ABC's post-speech coverage. And uh, Nixon took great offense to that. And they didn't like the idea of Anchorman discussing the speech afterwards anyway, because they wanted their message out there without any kind of filter. Uh, a quote I didn't use, but I rather enjoyed was David Brinkley said, how else were we supposed to fill the time? Organ music? (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I I think that points to this broader uh, theme in in this period of journalism, right? This turn to interpretation or this this shift that happens, especially in these couple of presidencies right here. Can you speak to that a little bit and sort of the change that we were seeing in journalism at this time? Yeah, they go – a number of people, Matt Pressman and and others, have pointed to how the press kind of – transitions from being stenographers to being more uh, critical. I mean, just it was just a few years earlier, it was during 1963, that um, the press started noticing and doing stories, in fact, it was a cover story in Newsweek, that the White House was doing, um, you know, was manipulating them, uh, that, that it was uh, trying to shape coverage. This was considered scandalous during the Kennedy administration. It's, it's within that context that, that this is happening. And, and so you've, you've got someone, Richard Nixon, who was vice president and, and before that in the Senate, before that in the Congress, with a much more pliant uh, press. And so he already comes in hating it. And we're in this period of time when, when journalists are seeing their role expanding to, uh, to uh, critiquing. 
and uh, the White House was not having it. The White House, uh, they did not, it should be pointed out, they did not see the press just as critical of them as every president back to George Washington has seen them. The Nixon administration was unique in that, like Trump, Nixon and his people saw the press as a partisan enemy, um, as an opponent to be beaten. Uh, it wasn't just, they didn't conceive it as, you know, they had a, a, a role to play in a constitutional uh, democracy uh, uh, to, to uh, you know, with a free press to, to, to criticize. They saw them as an opponent that needed to be beaten, and they had a strategy for it. And so what was that strategy in this episode, right? Nixon gives the speech. The speech goes well with the public, but the, the administration doesn't like the press response. So how does the administration respond? Well, they had a, kind of right from the beginning, they had this plan that they would uh, they would criticize. They'd get on reporters. They would call up their bosses and, and complain about every single story. And Jeb Magruder at one point writes a memo called the Shotgun versus Rifle Memo, in which he says, "Look, the shotgunning uh, 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 process that you're doing is just not efficient. We need to do something that's more targeted. Instead of complaining about every single story, we need to do things like sick the FCC on broadcasters, and um, and 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 threaten them with anti." trust suits and, and, and things of that nature. But Nixon still wanted them uh, to go after the, uh, people, and so they did. So they, they had kind of a carrot-and-stick approach where they would punish reporters, complain to their bosses, but also would have these behind-the-scenes meetings with network executives where they would try to get them to be more pliant. Interesting. So what was Agnew's role in all of this then? Well, after the November 3rd speech, the great silent majority uh, 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 speech, Buchanan, Pat Buchanan, comes up with the idea of putting Agnew out on the road to give a speech going directly at uh, uh, networks uh, uh, and, and, and making the accusation that it's this small group of people that are have an outsized influence on what millions of people see. And so they scheduled a speech for him to give uh, just a few weeks uh, after Nixon's speech, tamer than what we hear from Trump. But what <laughs> networks heard was a real threat because back then the FCC had real teeth. And, and, and so um, um, Pat Buchanan wrote uh, the speech. At the time it was... Uh, uh, the White House said this was all Agnew's doing, but but uh, uh, Buchanan wrote it, Nixon approved it, and they went and invited themselves to a GOP convention, regional GOP convention in Des Moines, and um, and then they let the networks know that they were going to have this critical speech, um, uh, speech critical of the networks. Uh, the networks did not have anyone in Des Moines for this. It was a complete surprise. There was a PBS station with a black and white feed. And uh, when the networks were notified, ABC was the first one. There's some dispute over this, but to, to me, it looks like ABC was the first to make the decision to cover it. And uh, ultimately, all three networks preempted their West Coast feeds of their newscast to give live coverage to Agnew's speech. And Agnew said, look, I don't even know if my word will 
reach anyone because the networks get the final say on this. But indeed, they, the networks covered it uh, live, and it was big news the next day in the New York Times. It was uh, above the fold. And Agnew encouraged people to write uh, letters and telegrams uh, to the networks to complain. And they do. Thousands of uh, people do this. And Haggerty, very, for ABC, very helpfully uh, gives this information to the White House to let them know <laughs> how, how things are, are going over. And Agnew, he, it must be said, he, he, he wasn't a particularly valued member of the team. Uh, Nixon didn't really trust him that much. But conservatives loved him. And by criticizing uh, the media, it gave him increased relevance. He fed off of this. And so he continued giving speeches. And then he went after the print media. And, and he kind of went on this, this long war <laughs> against the media that, that, that conservatives ate up. And uh, at a certain point, the White House was even saying, you know, let's cut back on this. Um, let's not you know, uh, let's save some of this for when we need it, for when the elections uh, uh, come. Uh -huh. um, but uh, but it did give him increased relevance. Well, and so so in, in the paper, you and you note other people use this term as well, but you, you sort of call this approach Agnewism, right? Can you um, can you clarify, like, are there are there particular traits of Agnewism that we might look for in, you know, other other political realms? Um how how could we boil what he was doing down? Well, it was it was vilifying uh, the press and and television, uh, and television was more vulnerable than the press because it's licensed uh, by the FCC. But it's 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 turning turning uh, uh, reporters into political enemies, treating them as though they were partisans. And and uh, this is the part that I think we can see in in today's uh, uh, environment. Although the media environments are entirely different, we've not since then seen a president treat reporters or broadcasters as as a, a political opponent. And I think that's what Marvin Kalb was referring to when he termed the, termed it agnuism. Okay. I understand. So, so how does the story progress for folks like Reynolds and Smith at ABC? Um, how does this relationship with the Nixon administration and these attacks by the Nixon administration on broadcasters like ABC, how does that play out? Well, we have to remember back then, they did commentary at the end of the newscast, something we don't see now. And uh, uh, the White House loved Howard K. Smith's commentaries because he was supportive of them. In fact, he was friendly with Nixon, would visit Nixon at the White House and would be invited with his wife to dinner at the White House and so forth. On the other hand, Frank Reynolds, they hated his uh, commentary and um, complained about it constantly. Well, in 1970, ABC comes across an opportunity to hire Harry Reasoner, who was on uh, 60 Minutes, which was still a new show at CBS. But Harry Reasoner had not negotiated a contract to his liking at CBS. ABC gets an opportunity to hire him, and now they're faced with what do we do? Who do we uh, – we got to use Reasoner. Do we uh, take Frank Reynolds off or do we take Howard K. Smith off? And the official story was that Howard K. Smith was more 
unique and that Frank Reynolds and Harry Reasoner were kind of interchangeable. And so they pulled Frank Reynolds. Now, Reynolds believes this is because of, 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 uh, of the White House's pressure, political pressure. Elmer Lauer, the president of ABC News when he was alive, uh, and Bill Sheehan both told me this was, there was no political pressure. This was done strictly based on, um, on uh, research, on, on audience research that they did it. But Reynolds uh, believed right to the end of his life that it was uh, political. And there's a telling incident that, that I uh, got into that kind of lends credence to it, that even if Elmer Lauer, who was president of ABC News, and Bill Sheehan, the vice president of ABC News, who was directly over the newscast, even if they didn't feel political pressure, it's quite possible that, that, um, uh, that those uh, uh, above Goldenson, the head of the network, um, and Haggerty, uh, uh, did. And there's this incident in which Reynolds does commentary on J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, remember, J. Edgar Hoover has approved ABC's showing of this television drama, The FBI. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Reynolds does commentary on an interview that J. Edgar Hoover gave to The Washington Post about a book written by former Attorney General Ramsey Clark. He says, Clark was the worst attorney general that he had ever served with, even worse than Bobby Kennedy. And and we know that Hoover hated uh, Bobby Kennedy. Well, Reynolds says Hoover just doesn't like criticism, and he calls him an untouchable and says that even if Elliot Ness, uh, 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 had he found Hoover's bathtub full of gin, wouldn't have pulled the plug. And that ticks <laughs> off Hoover because Ness is his, was, was a rival during Prohibition. Uh, Hoover and Ness were rivals. So Hoover calls up ABC and says, that's it. No more FBI on, uh, you know, the, the series. We're pulling our, our approval, our cooperation. You can't have that series anymore. And uh, according to FBI documents, Marty Pompadour uh, calls them up and says, look, we agree with you. Reynolds is vicious. We've had problems with him. We're going to get rid of him. Don't worry about it. That doesn't assuage Hoover. So Haggerty flies to Washington, and there's this very detailed account in the FBI documents of this meeting in which Haggerty begs, according to the document, begs Hoover to allow them to keep uh, the show. Haggerty claims he's still kind of running ABC News, which I wish I had known that when Elmer Lauer was still alive because that would have come as news to Elmer Lauer. (laughs) And... And Haggerty apologizes to Hoover and says, and basically represents that Reynolds was fired because of this incident. So Hoover says, okay, fine, you can keep the series. And 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 it should be known, these two were very close. In a, a, a TV Guide article that Hoover wrote before he died, but it was published after he died, he said that it was because of Haggerty, in part, that ABC got the TV show, that he had been approached by many others to do the show, but it was only because he trusted Haggerty. So Haggerty was very, uh, very close to, uh, you know, Ronald Ziegler, the press secretary. I mean, in the article, there's even a picture of of, of uh, him sitting uh, at Nixon's desk in the Oval Office. He was quite close to them. 
Interesting. So we're running short on time, but are, are there lessons from this story um, that maybe journalists today or politicians today or even ordinary citizens might want to take away from all of this? That's a good question. I think we're uh, we've we've been in the danger zone uh, the past few years with the press losing credibility be, because we've had a president who believed it worked for him to criticize it and um, how we get back, how journalists get back that credibility will be an interesting uh, thing. Uh, it's interesting to note that uh, after Watergate, after Nixon's uh, demise, uh, journalism enjoyed a lot of uh, popularity. Our journalism schools were full. Um, that's not the case right now. So it's hard to say, although there are similarities the media environments are so different, it's hard to know what lessons to really draw. Sure, sure, that's fair. Um, okay, so I have one last question, uh, and that's a question we ask all of our guests. Why does journalism history matter? <laughs> well, boy, that's a good one. That's a 30-minute that's a, that's a conversation. That's right. Yeah, journalism history because... Uh, for example, the students that we're teaching now, they have no idea how important the press has been, how important broadcast journalism has been to our democracy. All they know is what they're seeing, people's opinions of it in social media. And uh, although, you know, we've, as many people have documented in the journal, uh, you know, we've had partisan presses before and 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 uh, and so forth uh, at least it was recognized that a free press was something that was important for a democracy and 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 I don't know that our students really get that in the current environment interesting interesting well we'll leave it there uh, Dale I've really appreciated and enjoyed our conversation today thanks for being on the show thanks for having me that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at jhistoryjournal. That's all one word. Until next time, I'm your host, Ken Ward, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck. <laughs>